All right. Hi, everyone. This is Roland Fisher, lead pastor of Second City Church here in Chicago, Illinois, and I hope you're well. What a fantastic day that we are celebrating. It is Easter Sunday, 2020, and oh, will it go down in our history books. It's an unusual time, but it is still a celebratory time. It's a celebratory time because we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the pinnacle of our faith, the focus of all of our hopes, and the essence of all of our joys. Now, when we celebrate Easter, I'm gonna tell you that it's one of the most exciting times of year for me. It's greater than the Super Bowl. It's bigger than the World Series. In fact, it's more important than the NCAA tournament that I was sad to miss. But this day is the one that's life transforming, and we hope that this message will be for you today. So let's pray as we get into the Word of God. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us today. And in the midst of these strange and even trying times, God, we know that you are on your throne. And you're on your throne because, Jesus, you first came to the earth, walked amongst us, lived a sinless life, went to that cross for us, and were raised after three days because of your victorious triumph over death in the grave. God, we celebrate you now, and we're asking that you would transform us by that reality today. In your mighty name, amen. All right, so today, if you're joining us, what we're doing is we're continuing and actually finishing the series we've been going through for the past several weeks. It's a series called Famous Last Words, The Parables of Jesus. But today, as we finish the series, our title for the message is going to be, It Is Finished. And boy, do we all long to hear those words from our God and even from the medical community that what we've been experiencing recently is that it's finished. But we're going to focus today on the reality of why Jesus said that as some of his last words by focusing on this, that Jesus provides healing and resurrection life when death has been at your door. And I don't know about you, but that theme seems very relevant to all of us right now, that Jesus provides healing and resurrection life when death has been at our door. So we see this, and we're going to break it down in three parts today. We're going to first talk about where my eyes have been, talking about the fact that our eyes have been fixed on the places where our hopes have actually been set. Secondly, we're going to talk about death at our door, that at some point, sin, Satan, and suffering come to every person's door to strike at those hopes. And then finally, we're going to talk about Jesus when he said, it is finished, where our eyes can go because he said that, and understanding that Jesus' finished work on the cross brings healing and resurrection life to that which was once dead. So today, let's start with where my eyes have been. If you read the book of the Bible, you have to understand that it's an overarching story. It's not a series of independent stories, but it's one story from beginning to end. And the good news is, is that when we look at Jesus on the cross, Jesus on the cross is something of a crescendo. It's something that's been built up to for the many years from creation to the fall to God establishing his relationship with humanity and his redemptive work through the Jewish people in Israel. And then going through the historic books and the New Testament, I'm sorry, the Old Testament prophets that were calling people back to the law of God. When you get to Jesus, you see that Jesus was meant to be the fulfillment of all of God's promises that he made many years before he came. 
And we see in Numbers chapter 21, starting in verses 4 through 8, the instance of the Israelites coming out of their slavery, their period of slavery in Egypt for 400 years and being brought into the land of promise, the new life and the new hope that God had for us. And we see it as a foreshadowing of not only what Jesus would do for us, but what we're to look forward to, the lessons we're to learn whenever we're interacting with God in this walk with him. But we've got to ask ourselves, where have my eyes been? Where have my hopes been set? Where were their eyes and where were their hopes set? And what type of correction did God need to bring? So let's start in verse four of Numbers chapter 21. It says, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Now that immediately speaks to me because I struggle with being an impatient man. When I'm cooking, I want it now. When I order something at Amazon, I want it now. Matter of fact, when my wife was pregnant and we knew we were having children, I wanted them right now. I didn't want to wait the nine months. Impatience is something that we all deal with, even in waiting for the promises of God. This is what the Israelites were dealing with. And it said the people in their impatience spoke against God and Moses, saying this, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, this is one of those interesting, miraculous stories that took place in the Old Testament where God was showing his power and his hand. But if we break it down a little bit and look at it in this overarching story of redemption and God, we can learn valuable lessons here. We see that the Israelites had been brought out of Egypt for a specific purpose. They had been brought out of Egypt to worship God, to worship him with the hope of a new life in the land of Canaan, which is modern day Israel. As they were on their journey, however, They got derailed, beginning to complain against God because the route that they were taking didn't look like what they expected. Have you ever had that happen with you and God before? Got a little bit disgruntled because the route that you were on with God didn't look like what you expected? They began to loathe both the process and the provision that God had given to take them into the promised land. The Israelites' destination and their goals became more important to them than the one with whom and for whom they were traveling to worship. Almighty God. And how true is that of us so often? We're so quick to want to say, God, I want your blessings, but if I get you, that's just an extra. We say, God, gimme, gimme, gimme. 
But if what you actually think about me or your interaction with me, that's just something I'll get to when I get to it. This is what the Israelites were dealing with here. They had lost focus on what God had actually called them to, ultimately a life of worship in him. And when I think about this in relationship to our lives today, I think about the realities of the frustrations that some people are dealing with. Some of you have thought that you'd be in a different place in life by now, and this quarantine hasn't helped with this at all. <laughs> you thought that your career, maybe, might have been at a different place. You thought that you might be married now and have children who adore you. Well, don't we all? I'm just kidding. My kids love me. I talked to them about this. <laughs> they do. All right. But they also say, you know, listen, you thought your marriage would contain a certain type of bliss. You thought your golden years of retirement would be filled with joy and ease. But for some reason, somewhere along the way, it hasn't turned out that way. And with each disappointment, you've been tempted to turn your eyes from God only to feel the serpent's sting. Now, when we're in the quarantine, we, we are confronted with realities such as these. You might be realizing what a man named Timothy Keller said about our lives and our realities in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He said, no person, even the best one, can give your soul all it needs. This cosmic disappointment and disillusionment is there in all of life, but we especially feel it in the things in which we set our hopes. When you finally realize this, there are four things you can do. You can blame the things that are disappointing you and try to move on to better ones. And that's the way of continued idolatry and spiritual addiction. Number two, you can blame yourself and beat yourself. That's the way to self-loathing and shame. Or number three, you can blame the world. That's how you get hard, cynical, and empty. Or number four, this is what God's calling us to even in the Easter moment. You can reorient the entire focus of your life on God. You see, this is what happens in the midst of moments like these. Your life is meant for worship, and it's a place, the place, not just a place, but the place where you'll experience true satisfaction. But what we've got to do is ask ourselves the question, where have you gotten derailed in your focus? And are there pursuits in your life more important to you than the worship of God? Because this is what was happening with the Israelites, even as God was trying to take them into the land of promise. And it's why they ultimately felt the serpent's bite. At some point, sin, Satan, and suffering, as we've said, come to every person's door to strike at our hopes. And sometimes, just to break it down, we experience the bite of the serpent because of our own sin, meaning that we bring the consequences of life upon ourselves by the choices that we've made when we've gotten our focus off of God and onto these hopes that ultimately disappoint. Sometimes, however, it's also true that sin is thrust upon us, that we are the recipients of other people's choices, 
and the bite of the serpent is felt because other people have made choices that have been detached from God, and we suffer because of the choices that they've made. Either way, we see that we feel the serpent's bite. But the good news of the gospel, and that's in fact what the gospel means as good news, is that God calls us to a place of healing after the serpent has bitten. There's a man, a theologian named J.I. Packer, who talked about the difference between false or worldly optimism and a true hope that we're given in God when God turns us to his only true supernatural solution. And he said this, that optimism hopes for the best without any guarantee of its arriving and is often no more than whistling in the dark. Christian hope, by contrast, is faith looking ahead to the fulfillment of the promises of God. As when the Anglican burial service inters a corpse in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. You might have been at funeral services where you've heard that before. Optimism, he went on, is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty, guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. Now, that's a beautiful thing to hear. Many of you were able to just enjoy the dance that took place at the beginning of our service where they were singing and declaring the goodness of God, saying that regardless of what we're seeing around us right now, it's going to get better. It gets better. Why? Because even when the serpent stings, God provides a solution for our healing and also our redemption. When our world feels the bite of the serpent because of our wanderings and sin, the good news is that God gives us a place to turn during these times. And in John chapter 3, Jesus begins to connect this story of the Bible. He says, what you experienced and read about, meditate on, meditated on, and heard in the Old Testament about this period of the serpent biting and God healing through this staff and this pole that was raised up, Jesus makes a clear connection and says, ultimately, it's all about me. It's all about me. And I'm God's solution that you can look to in the midst of this thing to receive that healing. In John chapter 3, starting at verse 13, he said this, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man, which was Jesus' favorite term for himself, talking about his messianic role, his role as Savior of the world. And in verse 14, he said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So you see, he's making a direct connection to that which we just read. Just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. See, that's what we're talking about during this Easter season, that he was lifted up on the cross, talking about the type of death he would, die, um, he would die. Verse 15, he says that whoever believes in him 
may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, contrary to popular opinion. He said, I didn't send my son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. The point is ultimately this. What has been scarred and broken through the serpent's bite ultimately can be healed. And what has died when those hopes have been taken out by our wrong choices, disconnected from God, can ultimately be resurrected. And it's ultimately because of the fact that Jesus declared, it is finished. On the cross, he said, it is finished. It is finished. I've paid the price for your separation from God because of your rebellion and sin. And I've bridged the gap so that you can have a new place where your eyes will go. And looking to Jesus' finished work on the cross brings healing and resurrection life to what was once dead. When we look at what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, what we see is that ultimately Jesus took the serpent's bite for us. He took the serpent's bite for us. Or metaphorically speaking, if you were bitten by a serpent and somebody had to come and place their own mouth on the wound and suck out the venom, Jesus did that thing for us on the cross so that the poison could be sucked out of our lives. We could literally, through repentance and faith, be made a new creation and then begin a new life in Him. This was exemplified on the cross specifically by another instance that we could overlook, but I want to dig into a little bit today. And what happened on the cross was when Jesus was hanging there, he actually said it's finished in this context. John 19 verses 28 through 30 says this, after this, meaning when Jesus was on the cross, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Jesus was on the cross and you can imagine him hanging, hanging for hours, trying to pull himself up, suffocating under the weight of not only his scourgings and his beatings, but suffering under the weight of the wrath of Almighty God being placed upon him as a substitute for the sin that he was taking for you and for me. And he said, in that moment, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. So you see him directly connecting that story in the Old Testament to him being hung on the tree and lifted up on that tree. And he says, I'm taking the sour wine and it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We hear things like that, but our natural human question is still, I appreciate that, but how long will my trial last? If Jesus said it's finished, how long will my trial last? 
And what Jesus is saying here, if we unpack this a bit further, is that he's in it with you ultimately until the end. But it will be when he has completed his work in you and through you that the trial will be finished. The beauty, though, is he says, he's that friend who sticks closer than a brother and he's in it to win it. <laughs> Everybody's looking for that friend who's in it to win it. You ride or die, and Jesus is ultimately that for us. If you remember last week's message, even though we're talking about this sponge that he drank from before he gave up his last breath, saying it was finished. If you remember last week, Matthew recounts Jesus being offered two drinks on the cross, not just one. The first was as follows in Matthew 27, verses 33 and 34. He said, and when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, death being at the door, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So he's saying that the first time he was offered the drink, he wouldn't take it. The second time he did and then declared it is finished. Why the mention of these things in the scripture? Well, William Lane, who's a New Testament historian and scholar, explains it this way, that according to an old tradition, respected women of Jerusalem provided a narcotic drink to those condemned to death in order to decrease their sensitivity to the excruciating pain. When Jesus arrived at Golgotha, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh, otherwise known as gall, but he refused it, choosing to endure with full consciousness the sufferings appointed for him. So the first time he was offered that sponge to really fully embrace a serpent's bite, he said, I'm refusing to dull my senses. I'm refusing to make this any less of a moment than it actually is. I'm going to receive and experience all the pain, all the suffering that you have experienced. That's the God that's calling you to serve him. He says, I don't just give you commands. I enter into your suffering. And Lane continues with this comment about the second one. He says a sour wine vinegar is mentioned in the Old Testament as a refreshing drink. And in Greek and Roman literature, as well, as, <clears throat> as well it's a common beverage um, appreciated by laborers and soldiers because it relieved thirst more effectively than water and was inexpensive. But here, here, here's the place where people differ in their understanding of what happened here. This is what Lane says. He says there are no examples of its use as a hostile gesture. There are no examples of its use as a hostile gesture. There's just giving refreshment to Jesus. The thought then is not of a corrosive vinegar offered as a cruel jest, as one last mockery of Jesus on the cross, but a sour wine of, of the people. While the words, let us see if Elijah will come, express a doubtful expectation, the offer of the sip of wine was intended to keep Jesus conscious for as long as possible. So if we go that route, we see that Jesus was ultimately allowing himself before he said it is finished to be refreshed, to remain conscious, fully aware of what he was suffering for you and for me until the job was done. 
The first wine Jesus refused, the second he drank. But you know, there's, if we dig a little bit deeper and we dig into the culture, I'd like to submit to you another, a little less glamorous picture of what that second sponge actually represented. There was a pastor, as many uh, do, who took a pilgrimage to Israel and was being led around on a tour to understand the New Testament and its times during the period of the gospel writing, the times of Jesus, the times of the book of Acts, the early church. And there was one man who, the pastor, who was giving an account of his time there. And he said this, that in the middle of the ancient city was a large public restroom. The seats were marble and under the seats were open areas that seemed odd. Curious, this pastor said, I asked the professor what the open areas were for. He explained that slaves would use that hole to reach under the person who had gone into the bathroom to scrub them using a long stick with a sponge on the end that had been dipped in sour wine as an antiseptic to kill the bacteria. In that moment, this pastor said, he remembered the words of John 19, verses 28 through 30, which we just read. He said, I asked the professor if it was this, that if this was shoved into Jesus' mouth to shut him up from talking about forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. The tour guide hadn't seemed to make that connection before, but said that it could be likely. In his studies, though, this is what the tour guide said. He said the ancient soldiers in that day had as part of their field kit a sponge that they used to scrub with after going to the bathroom. And they, too, would have dipped it in wine vinegar to kill germs. So it seems when Jesus spoke, I thirst, a soldier might have in fact thought it would be fun to stick the sponge in Jesus' mouth to add insult to injury. To add insult to injury. And Jesus knew what he was receiving. He said, I thirst, knowing what he was going to get to fulfill the scripture. And he took it anyway to receive the scourge of the serpent's bite. Importantly, Jesus did it by choice. And when he died, he died as a victor, not a victim. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And what this pastor said is that ultimately, in summation, what this picture also shows us when we realize we've been bitten by the serpent because of our own choices or the sin that's been thrust upon us, we see that on the cross, Jesus takes all of the crap on the cross and deals with it. He deals with your sin, both public and private. Those things that stink about you, and about me, from which we need to be cleansed. Those things that need to be purified. You see, when Jesus was lifted up, Jesus was lifted up in this way to deal with the things that are actually real life. The things that we don't like talking about, the things we'd rather get past. 
You see, but Easter isn't ever meant, Resurrection Sunday isn't ever meant to be a moment that we just get past. It's a lot of times what we ritually go through. It's that time of year again, so let's go through the motions. Some of you might be listening to this message today because it's your annual check-in with God. But more than a check-in, he wants to deal with our stuff. And he wants to question, what are the hopes? Where has our gaze been? Where has our focus been? And what has been the result of us being disconnected from him and receiving the bite of the serpent in his place? But what is he calling us to in the cross when he is lifted up and he's actually able to take all of the scourge of the enemy on that cross for you and for me? You see, it wasn't just about Jesus dying on the cross, but after his suffering, he brought the hope of new life. See, that's what Resurrection Sunday is about. He brought the hope of new life by his resurrection from the dead. Because of this, we have a new focus of faith and a new foundation for our hopes. Because he dealt with my mess, I can actually turn away from my mess, be cleansed of my mess, and actually have a new focus and faith in him. And this is why whenever Luke 24, verses 46 through 53, talks about what Jesus said his disciples should be about and focus on after his resurrection from the dead, he said this, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, which he did. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. See, all nations are suffering right now. But he says repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be preached to them. He said, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending you the promise of my father upon you, who is God himself, the Holy Spirit. And he says, but stay in that city. Stay in that city. Interesting, right? Stay in that city. Stay walled up and maybe even quarantined. Stay in that city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hand, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up to heaven. That's where Jesus is now, ruling and reigning, waiting to make his return. And they worshiped him. The point of it all, right? Bringing him back to the point of it all. They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. See, this is what God's calling you back to today a life of worship in him. N.T. Wright said the message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you are invited to belong to it. So in summation, what is Easter about today? That our present crisis will one day end. Yet now we have an opportunity to acknowledge where our eyes have been and the death that's been lurking at our doors. Jesus declared, it is finished on the cross because he dealt with the sting of Satan, death, and hell for us. Now our eyes should look to him in repentance and faith for healing and resurrection life. Let's come into that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everybody. Pastor Ron just shared with us 
the good news of the terrible things that Jesus went through for you and for me and all would who believe. And now we're going to remember that by celebrating communion together. If you don't have the bread and the juice, but you have them in your house, go ahead and grab them real quick while I'm explaining what communion is. So communion, we celebrate it because the night before Jesus went to the cross to be crucified, he was gathered together with his disciples celebrating the Passover. And he took the bread and he broke it in front of them. He said, this is my body broken for you. And then after supper, he took the cup of wine and he drank it and had them drink and saying, this is my blood that was shed for you, the blood of a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Now, something else the Bible also tells us is that so we could go into this in a worthy manner, we need to judge ourselves. We need to look at our hearts. We need to open our hearts up to our Heavenly Father, and we need to make sure that they're clean and we're repentful of the things that we've done so that we can take it of a worthy manner. So let's take just a moment and then we'll take it together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would search our hearts right now and reveal to us what we need to repent of, Lord, so that we can take in a worthy manner. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're ready, you can take the bread and remember this is Jesus' body that was broken in your place and in my place for you. And then in the same manner, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, This is my blood of the new covenant that was shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. If you trust Jesus to take away your sins and live for him moving forward, you can partake of this. And the good news is, is that when we've done that, the Holy Spirit comes and leads us in a new life. Thank you, Lord. Some of you have been watching today and felt the prick of the Holy Spirit in your heart. You might have been considering the things of God for a while, but really things made sense to you, maybe for the first time, or were reinvigorated for you today. And we want to give you an opportunity to seize this moment and to really respond to God. It's not enough that we hear the good news about Jesus. It's important that we respond to Him in kind. He's making an invitation. We must receive it. And so today, if you receive the good news that Jesus Christ came as the perfect Son of God to live the life that you should have lived, and on that cross died the death for your wrongdoing and rebellion against God, that you should have died. And today say, I don't want death and hell, but I want to receive the forgiveness that He has for me. Then you can make a commitment to Him today. And if you're making that commitment, would you pray this prayer with me? Father God, I thank you for your love for me, and I thank you for sending Jesus to live a sinless life in my place and on the cross die the death that I should have died. I acknowledge that because he was sinless three days later, you raised him from the dead so that I could have, through my repentance and turning away from my misdeeds, forgiveness of sins and new life in you. Make me a new person today. Forgive me, cleanse me, and show me how to walk with you and serve you, loving you the rest of my days in Jesus' name. You see, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so if you prayed that prayer, believing and confessing, the good news is today you're starting a new life. But what we want to do is give you an opportunity 
to get connected, to learn how to walk out this new life. And if you've made a commitment today, please visit us at secondcitychurch.com slash new life. There you'll find some information about how to take these next steps in Jesus, get connected to a God-fearing, God-loving community, and learn how to love him as he's loved you. So God bless you, and let's start this walk together.